Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jonathan Escoffery, author of the story collection, If I Survive You. I I guess what I'm really trying to say is if you're the subject matter on your own lived experience, why not bring that to the page? If if it'll put you in a position where you can be insightful and, and offer new insights to the literary world and the reading community at large. We'll be back with Jonathan Escoffery after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. 
In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash first draft writers to donate today. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Jonathan Escoffery, author of the story collection, If I Survive You, which was just longlisted for the 2022 National Book Award in Fiction. Escoffery is the winner of the Paris Review's 2020 Plimpton Prize for Fiction and is the recipient of a 2020 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow and is currently a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. If I Survive You is a collection of linked stories centering on a first-generation Jamaican-American young man named Trelawney, who is trying to carve out a place for himself in Miami amid financial disaster, racism, and bad luck. He is a college graduate with an English major who finds himself unable to find steady work, which leads to homelessness, odd jobs, and family fights. We began the discussion with Jonathan Escoffery sharing the genesis of the story collection. I asked him what brought him to the page and to this family. Yeah, you know, I was actually preparing my MFA applications in the fall of 2010. And it was actually the University of Minnesota where I wound up um, uh, attending my uh, MFA program that had the very first deadline, December 1st. And I remember I was doing these uh, makeshift at-home workshops with two of my closest writer writer friends uh, who are still close friends today. And basically, I, I thought I had the package that I was going to be submitting. You know, they typically tell you, get, if you're doing prose, if you're doing fiction, get together your two strongest stories that will fit within the page limit. And I had two stories. And one afternoon, I was about to meet with, the, with these two friends. And this other story just kind of poured out of me. It was a very short story, but it was just the... I think first and only story that I've ever written in one sitting. And um, it was a story that did not wind up making it into the collection, but Chalani and Delano and Topper were born out of this story. And it really kind of centered on that conflict with the two brothers living in this townhouse that their father owns. The one brother, Delano, kind of falling down on his responsibilities, not paying rent. But the catch is that he's the family favorite. Um, and so the father doesn't really want to do anything about it directly, but wants to pass on that responsibility to Chelani, who was the narrator of that story. And of course, he had those very Chelani-like frustrations where he, he thinks he's in a, an, an impossible situation and is kind of resentful um, of both of those other uh, male family members. And... Um, I, I, there was a lot of stewing going on, going on in that story, but I, I felt there were really interesting characters. I started talking about all of their lineages, culture. It was the first time I'd ever written about 
Jamaicans or Jamaicans in the U.S. or the son of Jamaicans uh, in the U.S. with Trelawney. And it, I just felt there was a lot of energy there. I wasn't sure you know, what I was going to do exactly with that story, but I really understood at that point that I wanted to follow these characters further and really dig deeper. And I knew in that story, there was kind of like a lot of humor. Um, I gave it to my workshop pals and um, it was short enough that they could read it on the spot and I could kind of see their facial expressions. And it seemed to be aligning with what I was getting from the story, what I was experiencing with it. And so I just wound up submitting that with my MFA applications for my for my writing sample, along with another story. And it, it was successful. I got into a few programs, but wound up going to the University of Minnesota. And that's where I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, is this a, is this a novel? Is this a story collection? Do I really want to spend more time with these characters? You know, in what way? How do I dig into them? I think what was most compelling to me was just how interested I was in. I, I, I was so interested in writing about these characters and I felt like I knew them and I was bringing something maybe a little bit unique to the page over things that I, I shouldn't say over, but, but um, beyond what I had uh, read. And I, I think when you, whenever you have a lot of energy behind something and it seems a little bit distinct and as though, I, I guess what I'm really trying to say is if you're the subject matter on your own lived experience, why not bring that to the page? If, if it'll put you in a position where you can be insightful and, and offer new insights to the literary world and the reading community at large. I actually had a question about your lived experience, but I want to talk a little bit more to ground this conversation and a little more about who these characters are before we get into yeah. it. So yeah. I want to maybe start with the first story. So the first story and actually the last story are both told in second person, which brings a certain kind of energy and power to stories. So I do want to ask you that. The first story in Flux, your first sentence says it begins with what are you hollered from the perimeter of your front yard when you're nine, younger probably. And so we learn throughout the story that Trelawney is really questioning and trying to figure out who he is with this question, what are you, which is so rude. And it's, <laughs> it is centered in, in race and ethnicity, but it, it also goes deeper about like, who are you? Who are you in your soul? What do you believe in? So throughout this story, we learn a lot about him, that he grows up with these Jamaican parents that they get divorced and he ends up living with his mom and his older brother lives with his dad and he doesn't really see his dad again. And he is really struggling and he's really smart, but he like sometimes in school because of his appearance, he has to dumb down what he writes. So the teachers will accept it or even believe that it came out of him because he's so articulate and smart and he goes to school in the Midwest and has this whole other experience of whiteness and comes back to Miami. And although he's had the privilege of this education, he's, he's struggling. He's living in his car. He can't find work. He's deep in his own poverty. And, I don't know if he gets closer to that answer because in the, like, for instance, in the Midwest, he was just black, but he wasn't just black in Miami. And so I just wanted to ask you about 
this story, the energy of the second person. And if I mischaracterized anything, please let me know. Uh, no, not, not at all. I think you, I think you really nailed it in your description of the story. I mean, you hit a lot of parts that a lot of points that I was really interested in exploring. Um, one of those points before I forget is this idea of, um, who he's supposed to be. He tries on different identities. He tries on different hats based on what other people are telling him he should be. And, you know, one of those hats is when he comes into uh, his black identity, he starts to kind of latch on to these, I don't know, these these kind of stereotypical, um, supposedly elemental aspects of blackness, like wearing baggier clothes or listening to rap music and speaking a certain way. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit comical, um, but it's not without a kind of logic because people are approaching him and telling him that he talks white, quote unquote, talks white. Right. Um, and then when he gets to high school, he once he's learned to talk black, quote unquote, <laughs> or when he um, you know puts on a black scent, he finds a little bit more acceptance. And yet, because his teacher you know, as he puts it, um, thinks he still writes white, this threatens to get him kicked out of school. And um, I think, you know, if I did my job right, what really encapsulates the difficult position that Trelawney is in is that he has to revise this research paper. And when he does so, and he does it in a way that, you know, he uses, he, he, he writes the way he's perceived to, to, to look and, and the way he might be speaking, using the N-word a lot. Um, his teacher gives him an, emphat an emphatic check mark, right? Saying, yes, this is what I wanted. And then he gives him also a D minus. And so what he's saying is, you know, this is the position I want you in. This is how I see you. This is how you should be. You should be subpar. And that is how you will fit into this world that we, um, that we all, uh, share together. Um, and so I wanted to show how Chelani is being kind of hemmed into these impossible situations or into these situations that are really setting them up to fail in a number of ways. But, but going back to the, the way the story opens, I really, when I was thinking about a, a big challenge for me for a long time, when I was trying to figure out how do you write stories and how do you create characters? And, uh, a lot of the early characters I was writing, they were, kind of ripoffs of other characters that I was reading in a lot of popular fiction or YA, or they're ripoffs of the characters that I was seeing on TV. I was figuring, well, this is how you, um, this is how you build a character. This is what characters, you know, eat for breakfast every day. It's like whatever you see on, when I watch Saturday morning uh, cartoons or whatever cereal is being advertised, you know, that's, that's how you build a character. You don't really look within and look at your own experience and, and, and put that on the page because I had just not seen my own experience. And what I started to think is, well, maybe if, if that's like the problem that I'm finding, this disconnect between, but, and, and for the record, those characters were all terrible. Those early characters that I wrote, they were horrible. They were, they were flat. They were uninteresting. They were unbelievable, even though they were supposed to be these generic characters that everybody should recognize, they, they weren't believable at all. And so I decided to make this kind of writing problem that I had a problem for my character. And that um, I think became an opportunity for me to actually create the story out of this problem that I saw, which is who is this character in the first place? And, you know, do I just say he's a black character and, and never talk about where his parents come from? Or should I actually talk about that? 
do I talk about his Jamaicanness or Jamaican lineage without actually talking about the challenges that he would face in actually claiming that Jamaican identity? And I decided to go ahead and make that the story so that that is the heart of the conflict. The, the heart of the conflict being uh, he cannot seem to locate his identity and, and he's having all of these outside forces challenge his identity and, and really, I don't know, uh, put I, whatever their ideas about his identity, they're, they're putting it onto him. And even as he simultaneously tries to accept that from them, from those outsiders, they're still denying him um, any kind of acceptance. So, you know, if he says he's black, uh, they say, well, no, stupid. Like, wh what about your parents, though? Where where are they from? And what are they? And, uh, if he says he's Jamaican, they say, well, you don't sound Jamaican. Like, we know Jamaicans to sound a certain way. <laughs> um, and so he, he, those are just being a couple of the examples. But he he has a, a, a hard time of it. But I wanted to do it in the second person because I wanted to kind of and it's second person long time, or particularly in that that first story where we're covering at least a couple of decades of Chelani's life. And I thought it'd be a little bit more believable if we're seeing this kind of compounding effect over decades rather than, you know, a week, a bad week where people say, oh, you're you're not black enough or, oh, you're not Jamaican enough or or, hey, you you appear to look like the Dominicans I know. You must be Dominican. Uh, you know, if putting that into one week, it, it seemed a little bit far-fetched. Um, not, not that those things couldn't all happen in one week, but the fact that he would actually sink into those different identities or be um, attempts to try to lash onto so many identities, I felt like it would be more realistic to do that over a longer period of time. And I noticed that the authors that I knew about who whose work I really respected, they seem to be able to accomplish that in the second person. I don't know, thinking of uh, Janine Capoquerset or thinking of uh, Juno Diaz or uh, Laurie Morris, who I was trying to think of. You know, there's something about the second person that I think it can really draw readers in very quickly. There's a kind of musicality that often um, arrives with the second person on the page as you lull them in with that, you do this, you do that. But I, I didn't necessarily want for readers to think that I was putting them, putting the reader in the, in the place of the you. Certainly they may have some experience with that, but really the way I see it is that Chelani is having this, uh, long conversation with himself. And he's thinking back on his um, decisions and some of his mistakes and some of the ridiculous things he, he, he did in terms of trying to lean into certain aspects of his identity or being um, pushed towards uh, identities that really don't have a lot to, to, to do with him directly. And um, I think there's that kind of tension or that possibility for criticism and self-critique that I really love about the second person point of view, because you can have a character saying, you as in me, I did this really dumb thing and these were the results. Um, first person to me, when when a, a character is, or a narrator so self-effacing, sometimes it, it feels a little bit performative to me. And so I, I thought the second person was a great opportunity for that. When you say that you knew it had to be over decades, did you know that right away and choosing those salient moments to put in a short story, 
Was that a lot of trial and error for you? Like, how did you land on those? I mean, the, 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 the very true, true truth of it is um, I was mapping, I was trying to map my own lived experience in a lot of ways. When I first started writing the story, it, I wasn't sure if it was going to be an essay. You know, so in a way, I was poking fun at my at myself. Um, I was poking fun at the, uh, you know, these other voices that are coming in and kind of pushing and pulling at who would become Chalani. But you know, in revision, I really wanted to map out and think, okay, if he is being told that he must be this, then that's a great time. That's a great opportunity to have just a couple of paragraphs to allow Chalani to to kind of try those identities on for size, and oftentimes. I don't know the way we talk about things like race or ethnicity or just different parts of our our identities. I think often we kind of look for easy signifiers and we also try to often understand these identities as these rigid kind of stuck things, these these things that aren't changeable. Where we often think about things that are, are kind of, and it's often stereotypical, but think, you know, if, if you're black, you must be um, athletic, you know, I'm a tall black guy and people are very offended when they learn that I'm pretty bad at basketball. It, it was, uh, it, it, I, I, I avoid basketball courts because people would pick me first for their team. And I just would know in the back of my head, this is going to go very poorly for all of us. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I say that kind of jokingly, but it's the, it's the truth. And I think there are certain things that are just associated with certain identities that are, are obviously ridiculous. And I wanted to, I wanted to be able to separate those things on the page and make it, make it stand out because I think, in the same way that this is compounding over all these years of Chalani's life, it's also uh, uh, hopefully a compounding effect on the reader to see, you know, now he's this, now he's that, now he's this. And it's done in these pockets of, you know, shorter, shorter bursts, I think. Yeah, it was, I think one of the most heartbreaking parts for me was when he went to a new school and he made friends with all these Puerto Ricans and he hung mm-hmm. out with them at lunch. And then one day they realized he wasn't Puerto Rican. He couldn't speak Spanish and that he was from Jamaica. And they're like, you're out of here. But then the blacks wouldn't accept him. Yeah. I think it's like a microcosm of our country. It's like, you liked me until you learned this one thing that was a dividing line for you. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think, I don't know, like I, I think of the story odd jobs, right. Where at this point in the book, Chelani's living out of his Raider, his SUV, that is. And he has this, he winds up having this conversation with the character Chastity, who has employed him uh, to come into her house and do this really weird thing. And she, in her job posting, she says, no black guys, but he shows up and she's like, you know, fine, come in because you must not be a black guy because the ad said no black guys. And then when he says, you know, truth is I am a black guy. Um, there's this weird conversation about uh, how her father had basically beaten her older sister for having a study date um, and having brought a black boy, a black high school age boy into the house for that study date. And that gets her elder uh, sister beaten. And it turns out that that boy wasn't even black. He was actually South Asian. And Chalani says, you, you know, 
do you know how many white women or something to the effect of, you know, you're like the 12th uh, white woman to have told me that story. And she says, I am not white. I'm Latina, brown. And so we have this whole like mix of people being kind of misidentified um, or their their race or ethnicity being misidentified. And it's it seems to be more about, you know, if you're black, I associate blackness with with this. And so that's the trouble. You're, the way you actually are is not the trouble. It's my idea of blackness or, or or whatever identity marker. And I've had so much experience with that throughout my life. But Miami, it seems to be just really concentrated. <laughs> it's the uh, you know it's the really potent stuff in Miami. I think because people are a lot more open to express their prejudices in Miami, but in a way that's that's very much still willing to accept, you know, they, they might marry a black person and still say at the dinner table every night, you know, they really hate black people. Um, and But their spouse is the exception. You know, I, I think I write about Miami because I have that, I, I don't know that everybody circles <laughs> uh, or everyone experiences that in Miami. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I know, you know, when you move away from home, you, you're able to kind of curate your circles very carefully. And so I've, I've curated my environments, um, you know, in Minneapolis, in Boston, in LA, in Oakland, um, in such a way that, you know, I, I hopefully don't have those people in my in my life in these other places. But when I go home, um, and I'm not even saying this as family members, but it just seems to be um, kind of everywhere when I go back to Miami. So about Trelawney's trajectory throughout these linked stories is, you know, the first one you do get these decades of his life, but then you have the rest of the story, I would say, are more concentrated on certain moments in his life. Um, including like this odd job, one where he's working at an elderly apartment building, situations with the house with his brother. And so I I wanted to just ask you about his trajectory, which if I had to characterize it, and please correct me if it's not right, is, is one of a lot of struggle. It's financial struggle. It's him living in his car despite having this education. It's an arts education. So, you know, English majors, <laughs> right. no matter what, English majors aren't like in high demand. And he ends up a teacher, which still makes him very poor. But I'm curious right. what you were interested in, in this character who is kind of stuck in this poverty and stuck in his life and and why that was interesting to you. Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I, I think, you know, throw a lot of conflict into my stories and and into this book. And I thought, you know, that would be kind of interesting to, I I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, I think of Chalani having left Miami for university, thinking that he was going to come away with this bachelor's degree. And that was going to allow him to, to come back home. This, you know, this, this great success, um, I don't know that it's ever quite written on the page, but I, I kind of imagine him as, you know, this first first generation college student. Um, it's never mentioned that any of his, um, I mean, it's, it's, it explicitly says in the book that Delano um, escaped the horrors of working for other people. And that included going to, to college. But Trelawney believes he's going to come back and that degree is going to guarantee his um, his success to some degree. And 
or and and beyond success, I, I think he expects that he will garner some kind of prestige and and respect from people, including his family, when he comes when he comes home. And he finds that's that's just not the 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 case. I think again, I'm I'm really interested in the ways I've experienced um, people's particularly again in, in in Miami, maybe because I've, I've run in a lot of kind of blue collar circles where people can be very, very successful um, in those jobs. And oftentimes what they understand, the, these again, I'm speaking like the the people I've experienced, I'm not certainly not trying to speak for all of Miami, but when people see concrete you know, measures of success, especially if that success or that material success is garnered through means that they understand so that if I say, okay, I can get a contract to do all of the landscaping in a particular housing community, and that's going to pay me $50,000 or $100,000 for the year, they understand what work I'm doing and what the pay is. And I think when you talk about you know, ideas like art and, you know, thinking about uh, putting a lot of value in, in things like reading and, and art. I've found that a lot of it baffles a lot of people. At best, it baffles a lot of people. Um, at worst, it, it, you know, I think people think you're, you're kind of dumb. <laughs> you think you're so smart having gotten that education, but we actually think you're kind of dumb because you, you, you now may have, you know, college loan debt and you come back and you can't even get a job. And this is kind of what, you know, maybe I was writing onto the page some of my worst fears because I actually never returned to Miami when I left. And for me, I just could not imagine what I would do if I returned to Miami. I just didn't think there was a job there for me. <laughs> you know, I played, I played that uh, situation out to either the inevitable conclusion or the worst conclusion, however you want to look at it. And so I thought about Shalani doing the same and thought, yeah, he probably would wind up, you know, if, if his parents didn't throw him the lifeline, um, then he probably would end up living out of his car or on the street in general. I kind of walked away from this book thinking like it has a very masculine energy. And mm-hmm. what would you say to that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think it does have a, a masculine energy. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm quoting someone in my head who would just say, you know, it's just it's just a, it is a bunch of dudes. It is a bunch of dudes telling their stories or, or a bunch of stories being told about a bunch of dudes in terms of um, Chelani Delano and, and Topper. Uh, I, I originally thought of it as a book that was going to be about these two brothers facing off, but you know, a big part of their identities are the, are the Jamaican aspect. And that's where Topper kind of came in because I thought, well, we need to understand like why the family left Jamaica in the first place. But a lot of what Chelani is grappling with is actually not so much between him and Delano, his brother, but between him and his father. And um, so that's why the story that starts in Jamaica, that starts in the 60s and brings us all the way up to um, something like 2009 is, is told in, in his perspective. I, I'm, I'm interested in these kinds of mistakes that men make, particularly um, the mistakes that fathers and sons make in terms of 
connection and in terms of you know particularly from the father aspect what it is that fathers pass down to their sons in terms of thinking about legacy but certainly thinking about how to be a man in the world and how to be a good man in the world and not be a harmful man in the world and a lot of these characters are, are really struggling with those questions I think the two fathers that are the main fathers, Trelawney's father, and then this this story splashdown, which is it kind of an offshoot. It's their cousin. Trelawney is not in that story. So Cookie is the character in that story who's their cousin, and he had a, a deadbeat dad that he meets again later. So I was thinking a lot that you must have been thinking about fathers and sons, and, and we can talk about splashdown if, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> the premise of the story is that I think he lives in Miami, but his dad lives in the Keys and he basically abandoned him and his mother at his birth. And right. his mother takes him to meet him when he's about maybe 13 or 14. And they form this bond. I mean, his dad never really apologizes for not being there. He's a lobster man. He's a little bit shady. He also works in this bar and he takes Cookie under his wing and teaches him the art of, of lobstering and being out on the boat. And Cookie finds motivation. He finds physical strength. He finds confidence, but it's still a really fraught relationship. And when he goes back, cause he needs his father later, Let's just say his father doesn't really pull through for him. Right, right. You know, there's a scene when Cookie first meets Ox. Or I should say that the, the day that he first meets Ox, when he's 13 years old, he goes down to the Keys. They go out on Ox's boat and Ox is teaching him how to catch lobsters. And before they kind of get into that lesson, Cookie's there and he's he's she's trying to hold on to these different tools like the net, the tickle stick, which will allow him to, 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 to cap, to catch a lobster. Um, and he has his, his, uh, snorkels and he's, he's struggling to swim and his father yells down at him float. And, and he's considering like what, what this, what this means for this man who, who is his father, but he's never met him before. So he's, you know, he's supposed to be his father, what it means for him to, to kind of stand there and watch him, uh, struggle to swim. And he has this urge in which he wants to he wants to sink to the ocean floor so that his father will save him uh, or, or so that he can see whether or not his father would save him. And I think that aspect, that dynamic between sons and their fathers, I think a lot of the sons in this book, um, or I say a lot, really, I'm thinking Cookie and Trelawney, they both want to know that their fathers love them enough that they would save their sons, even if, it's the sons themselves who are at times putting themselves in dangerous situations in order to force their fathers to make a decision as to whether or not to save them. One of the lines from that story that I really loved that I wrote down, Ox worked with this man named Happy. Right. And Happy seemed to have maybe some power over Ox. And I think they were talking to Cookie. Happy was saying this and he said, long as I've known him, Ox never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I love that idea of truth and storytelling and what is important 
And that's also like what you're doing, like you're mining your life for these ideas, but you're creating fiction. So I just wanted to ask you about this line and the idea behind it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I am somebody who is really a better writer than I am an orator. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't, you know, sell myself short, or maybe I should put more, more practice into oral storytelling. But um, I've always been really amazed by people who can just kind of stand up and tell a story. And um, some of the best storytellers in my own family, I, I think of my, my brother, I think of my father, and, and I can think of others. But what I notice is that when you've been around someone for long enough, they'll, they'll tell the same stories over and over again, but the details will change so often the details will change to kind of fit wherever it is that they're actually telling that, that story um, and who they're telling the story to. And maybe they tell it, if it's just you and them, they, they will say it one way. If they're in front of a crowd of, of you know, 10 people, that story's going to morph and it's going to change and maybe things will be exaggerated more. And I, I, I kind of love that. In Jamaica, they say, um, you know, if, if in Nagoso, it, it, it goes near so. So if it's if it didn't happen like exactly that way, it, it happened near enough that way. And to me, that's that's what I'm doing when I'm when I'm telling these stories about Jamaica. I, I think about my parents, the stories that they told me and my brother when we were growing up. And I prefer to tell those stories the way my parents' generation remembers growing up in Jamaica, for example versus seeing what the newspapers say because it's to me it's about like the heart of it and what actually survived with the people themselves versus what the institutions that are in power like the way they actually uh, will tell the story a, a, sometimes a completely different way so, so to me you know keeping those stories alive and getting to the heart of it even if the de the details are changing <laughs> i think that's you know that's the kinder way for me to to kind of look at a quote like that and i you know i mostly stick to it i do i do think the dynamic that's going on with ox and cookie and happy saying that you know it <laughs> it's not painting ox in the best light and he knows that maybe he shouldn't actually believe everything that he's told he, he maybe his father is actually a pretty untrustworthy person when push comes to shove and lived experience aside, I'm, I'm, uh, my job was to serve the stories. And so given what happens at, at the end of that story, I wanted to build in this um, mistrust of Ox so that we understand, you know, even when he appears to be doing a good job parenting or we see the good results of his parenting um, over the course of several summers, um, but he's still a man that we we might want to be kind of wary of and and cookie certainly needs to be um cautious around his father he wasn't cautious enough <laughs> no no he was not but he he needed he needed an answer um and answers come at a cost in, in this book yeah i kind of wrote this note after that that your book has this way in which a lot of the characters get used and I don't just mean Trelawney. I mean, Cookie gets right, used. Right. Lots of them right. get used. Right. And it's good for fiction, but it's just so sad for life. 
Yeah, and <laughs> I don't know. I think I think there's a kind of pleasure in pointing it out, though, and and I and this is the the good use of pleasure. I think um, I know when I'm a as a reader when I'm reading something that is a phenomenon that I've experienced and I've noticed in life, and I see it on the page, and I and I know now that I'm not the only the only person who's either experienced it or recognized it or you know seen it in the world. Um, I, th I think. Uh, I think that's powering that power in that in, in in writing it down and saying this is something that's happening and and it's you know it's either wrong or it's weird or <laughs> you know we, we need to have a conversation about this. I'm usually more interested in in posing a conversation rather than necessarily doing a lot of finger pointing and saying, you know, this is how it should be, or this is exactly what's wrong. Obviously, there are things that happen in my book that I would say are wrong, but um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in that push and pull between um, people of different political leanings or people of different generations, for that matter. You know, when when we have a, a topper who tells Trelawney when he moves home, you know, a lot of people are losing their jobs. Stay stay out of these neighborhoods. And Trelawney says, you know, there's no such thing as a bad neighborhood. And the cause of all of this in the first place is white collar greed. And Topper says, you know, <laughs> he thinks he's going to actually explain this to uh, the the robber who comes at him with a gun. He thinks he thinks his knowing the cause is actually going to stop a bullet. And you know, to, to me, they they both have a point, and I'm I'm really interested in kind of bringing those conversations to to the page. Is there anything about the about the book that we didn't talk about that you want to before I get to the final questions? Yeah, you know something that's interesting that that happened to me I think last week was that I was in an interview with somebody who um, I think is more of a more of a uh, someone who's used to reportage more than talking about books and the question he asked me which I love <laughs> was whether I called this a story collection um, to make it more marketable because people these days don't have the attention span to actually read a full novel and that I maybe wrote a novel and I'm just calling it stories so that it will sell more. <laughs> he didn't say I did that, but he asked if that was my strategy and I had never you know, for the past 10 years, when I've been working on stories, what everyone has always said is, why don't you work on a novel instead? Like, why would you spend your time working on stories? Because they're they're difficult to sell. Um, and there are advantages to calling your work uh, a novel. Um, and so I, I think we I'm wondering if there's this interesting shift that, you know, we we may be seeing in terms of what might be thought of as the the more marketable thing uh moving forward obviously that's a i'm not saying that that is the case but um i i think that's kind of a, an interesting question to me in terms of you know what what people are going to be reaching for uh first if they actually make a distinction between the two forms of uh fiction well, not that there are only two, but <laughs> between the story collection versus the versus the novel, I should say. And one more thing I just want to say about the first story before we get to the last questions is, you know, there's a powerful moment in there that I think many people have experienced in real life. I don't know if you have where, you know, this question of what are you? He took a DNA test. He was 30. <laughs> he was 38 percent West African and 59 percent like mixed all these mixed like European things. So if you put it all together, he had more, quote, white 
blood, I (laughs) guess, than anything else. And it only seems to confuse the matter, but it also clarifies the matter. And I think that for most people, it's like this, this open question. If your, your DNA comes back as something like, what are you? And I think it's an endless question with no answer. Yeah, I, I I think whatever you were before is probably what you you are afterwards. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of my my experience, um, which is which is very it's very it's similar to um, similar enough. I'm not saying the numbers are exactly the same, but you know, I, I think that's where he comes to it. He says blackness is is it's large enough to contain all of these you know, European countries that are showing up on this chart that, you know, whichever DNA uh, company has, has sent to him via email, um, he, he, he's, he's still black. And he says it over, you, you know, you're, you're, you're English, you're Irish, you're, you're, you are, and then, but also you are black. It contains your blackness, you're black, you're black. I think that's where we're supposed to kind of move forward with Trelawney, you know, it's, it takes, it, it takes him 20 years, but he moves forward having finally settled on that. Like, okay, despite what everyone's saying, I have to, I have to go out into the world and live this black experience. And particularly because he goes back to a place like Miami, it's, he's still going to be confronted with those questions, but he needs to not be consumed by those questions. I think. Can you read a short passage from an author that influenced you uh, or speaks to you as a writer? Uh, My pleasure. I'm going to read from the story, Who Will Greet You at Home? And this story can be found in What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky by the author Leslie Neka Arima. When Ogechi had taken her first baby, a pillowy thing made of cotton tufts, to her mother, the older woman had guffawed blowing out so much air she should have fainted. She'd then taken the molded form from Ogechi, gripped it under its armpits, and pulled it in half. This thing will grow fat and useless, she'd said. You need something with strong limbs that can plow and haul and scrub. Soft children with hard lives go mad or die young. Bring me a child with edges, and I will bless it, and you can raise it however you like. When Ogechi had instead brought her mother a paper child woven from the prettiest wrapping paper she'd been able to scavenge, her mother, laughing the whole time, had plunged it into the mop bucket until it softened and fell apart. Ogechi had slapped her, and her mother had slapped her back, and slapped her again and again till their neighbors heard the commotion and pulled the two women apart. Ogechi ran away that night and vowed never to return to her mother's house. Do you want to share why you chose that? First of all, it's a story that I really love. And I think there's just so much, um, so many really interesting aspects uh, about the story. We see in this particular passage that, well, to set, to set the story just a little bit, these characters exist in a world in which the way babies come into the world is that their mothers make them or mold them out of a particular type of material and their mothers have to bless those children. And then if they uh, make it a year without being destroyed, they become actual children. And so I love this idea because it, it shows what do parents actually want 
for their children in a sense. And we see that this character, Ogechi, um, is hoping that she can have a child who is able to actually exist in our harsh world, in their harsh world, um, the world as we we can imagine based on, on the text, where the would-be grandmother would prefer that this grandchild be able to haul and scrub and plow, where Ogechi wants a soft child and wants a pretty child and wants someone who will be valued for attributes that are not associated with working a hard life. And um, I don't know, I see so much of Chalani and and Topper in this kind of dynamic where Topper says, you know, you, Chalani, should be grateful that we left Jamaica because you're soft and you would never survive in Jamaica. And Chalani just, you know, he wants something else. Um, he wants to be able to identify with his father's culture. And, you know, this, this passage here, I, I think it just really speaks to a kind of beautiful molding of a character that has their, uh, their, the engine of their desire is kind of warped. I think uh, this character hasn't felt love from her own mother. And so she believes she has to mold a very particular kind of child. Um, that child has to be made of something beautiful in a sense to be worthy of love. And um, I, I think because uh, Arama, the author of this story, has made the world a little bit strange it helps us kind of see what parents and children in the real world um, can sometimes go through in terms of what parents uh, expect of their children and what children think their parents uh, believe about them. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I'm going to read from the penultimate story in my collection. And I'm going to start with the title, if he suspected he'd get someone killed this morning, Delano would never leave his couch. But Delano is not clairvoyant. The closest he comes to a premonition is when, in the dream he is suffering through, his father says, a storm's coming. Fool as you are, you can see that. Delano forces his brain to escape into the waking world, but his TV insists Key West residents are expected to begin evacuating as early as this evening as Hurricane, and, uh, as Hurricane Irene continues to gather strength over the Atlantic. The anchors discuss flood predictions as the camera cuts to a digitized map of Florida. The peninsula is altered by a translucent cone, which curves from the northern coast of Puerto Rico up past Hispaniola and Cuba to Miami. As the producers zoom in on Greater Miami, Delano imagines he can pinpoint his Cutler Bay townhouse and his body stretched across the, the sofa. So I chose that one because it, it was a, a totally different uh, opening when I first wrote the story and went through many, many drafts over the years. The story was... It originally opened with me actually describing the dream scene that Delano found himself in um, with his father kind of heckling him and berating him and telling him that he was behind on his rent and that he wasn't himself being a good father to his own two sons. And um, I brought it to uh, one of Charles Baxter's workshops. And I remember him telling me that, you know, the problem with writing dreams sometimes is that you are 
being too on the nose with the meaning. It's like you're, you're giving us a kind of theme and you're, you're kind of shoving it down our throats in a sense, if I'm to understand his, his advice correctly. And so I paired back on that entire scene and what the scene became or the, the entire dream. And what the dream became was just that line, a storm's coming, fooled as you are, you can see that. The story also used to be titled The Bucket which was referring to the bucket truck that Dillow and his partner are going after, um, which he eventually, you know, well, I won't even say what he, what he does, but he's trying to get this bucket back, his bucket truck back so that he can do uh, a, a tree trimming job before a hurricane makes landfall in Miami. And if he's able to accomplish that, he'll be able to get his business back on track. And that will allow him, uh, that will allow him hopefully to be able to uh, get his two sons to come back to Florida from California. So it was this kind of play on the bucket, like kicking the bucket and the bucket truck that they're going after. And I, you know, it it really felt at at the time, by the time I sent it out, um, this story wound up getting picked up by American Short Fiction. And right before I sent it to them, I thought, you know, that that the bucket, it sounds like you get it once you read the story, but you don't really understand it before you read that. And it kind of sounds, you'd probably imagine you know, a mopping bucket, like a pail um, that you would fill with water or something. And I just didn't really feel like that was the most interesting image to um, connect to a re- connect with a reader. And I wanted to, there's that adage, you know, getting, get in, as in get into your story late, get to the conflict late, uh, grab your, grab your reader as, as quickly as possible. And when I say get to the, the conflict late, what I mean is get to the con- conflict as quickly as possible, but um, start as late into what's going on in your, your characters' lives um, as, as close to that conflict as possible. And so I thought if I kind of forecast that, you know, he's going to make some mistake that gets somebody killed this morning, that helps us uh, wonder, well, who does he get killed? And, you know, how is this going to, how's this going to turn out? But it was a it was an opening that I, I really it took me a really long time to get moving to to put it kind of in action and it felt it felt very stagnant to me for a long time and so um, I, I think of the title and those those two opening paragraphs as prose that I worked on for a long time to make sure that it moves so that he's moving very quickly out of his dream into the waking world. But the, what what's in the waking world is telling him this information about the hurricane. And that's going to kind of bring him right back to where he's positioned on this sofa. And we should say the title of it, because I don't think you said it yet. The title is the opening sentence. It's if he suspected he'd get someone killed this morning, Delano would never leave his couch. Yeah, <laughs> I was borrowing from uh, poetry that I've, I've read that kind of does that, where it's, you know, immediately then the first line is is playing with the title. And um, yeah, that's where that came from. Where do you write? I have come to be a desk writer. I used to be someone who would uh, wake up and grab my laptop and throw it onto my chest and start typing. <laughs> but I found that it really helps to have a place to go to. So I have a little corner in my apartment, which is set up with my desk and a lot of books and a lot of, um, you know, when I say books, I, I like to keep kind of reference books around me. So um, it, it may be things that if it's poetry, I might read a little bit of poetry before I go to working on my own prose. But I, I think having a destination to show up to is at least these days or over the past several years has been the thing that really works for me. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? 
You know, I, I was thinking um, maybe three years ago, uh, somebody had asked me what else I do other than write. <laughs> what do I do for fun? Where, you know, this question, essentially, where do you go to get away from it? And I honestly, I didn't have, I didn't have an answer. And um, it, it kind of sent me spiraling. It made me think you're, you were just the most dull person in the world. And um, around the time that the COVID-19 pandemic set in and, you know, lockdowns started, uh, I wound up getting back into video games, which gave me a ton of joy when I was a kid, basically up until I graduated high school and I had to, I had to myself get a job, um, or I already had jobs, but I had to support myself. And, um, I decided to just delve back into the joy of playing video games. And I got a Nintendo switch and I, it's great because you can download games right from the internet and you can wait till they're on sale for like a dollar 99. And I really enjoy racing games, especially if I can play a uh, motorcycle for some reason, it's just my happy place. And I'll listen to podcasts and I'll play my racing game. And, um, it's, it's a joyous experience for me. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, the the answer to that question really depends where I am at. Uh, I'm going into my fourth year of workshopping um, with a graduate program, uh, this time with with the Stegner at Stanford. And um, I tend to save my stories for those workshops because for those workshops, you have to turn in something. And so um, I I, I tend to utilize those brains and, um, you know, this... I've one year in and my second year starts next month. If this next year is anything like the last year, it was a lot of brilliant brains all focused on your piece at one time. And that was a really great experience. Um, had I not been in any of these programs, I do have a, one of my longtime readers, uh, Dariel Suarez, who's a, another brilliant author. He's um, one of the two friends I've spoken about who had first read Chelani and Delano and Topper. And he was actually the very first person who looked up from the page and said, you have more than a story here. You have a book on your hands. And, um, and you know, thankfully he was right, you know, all these years later. But um, he, he's also somebody I, I send stories to. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, at one point I was really great at well, first, I was really bad at rejection, <laughs> um, you know, especially rejection when I was in grad school, um, when I was doing the MFA in particular. And then after when you graduate from, from an MFA and things are not immediately happening for you, which is the case with most of us, um, those were dark times. But what I realized is that if I just flood the literary world, um, that means magazines, that means residencies, that means competitive writing conferences, if I flood them with my submissions, um, I won't even remember where I've submitted to. And so when, and I did keep track just for the record, I did keep track, but I, I, I stopped looking at tracking all of these submissions. And so when a rejection came through, it would be from a place that honestly, I wouldn't even have remembered submitting to. Um, and I could kind of shrug it off because I knew that there were all of these other possibilities still floating out in the world. And what I would also do is go ahead and, you know, if, if I'd gotten maybe 10 rejections on the same piece, I would definitely read it over, um, and make sure I, I, I should be sending that, that thing out into the world. But if I, if I still felt confident about it for whatever reason, then I would just go ahead and, and resubmit. 
I think too, though, um, cause right now I'm not in the place where I have, I've, you know, uh, spammed out any stories or anything like that. Uh, I, I think it's helpful to keep a journal and write for, for me, it's helpful to write my goals and what I will, what I hope will happen in my writing career. And, um, it's a good way to map over the course of your career, what you actually have accomplished. And so that even when you're down on yourself and you're thinking, oh, I didn't get this one thing I really wanted, you can go back and read. Like if I go back and read uh, two years ago or three years ago, my what I was hoping for, I, 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 it makes me really proud of where I'm at today. What is your favorite word? You know, this... This is is a really hard question for me. <laughs> I'm thinking about the words that I've used over and again in my book. There's there's something that about the way Jamaicans in particular use the word fuckery that emotes something that uh, like I feel it in my chest when I hear it and when I say it with the right tenor, tenor with the right um, oomph. <laughs> it, it, it like it lights my senses, you know, my neurons fire, it, it, it sets my senses on fire. And it's a word that even as I was, I was listening to my audiobook um, this past weekend, and you notice things when someone else is, is reading to you for, you know, eight to or 11 hours or whatever, however long it was. Um, and I was like, oh, you, you really do like that word because it, it pops up again and again. But I was kind of like, yeah, but I love that word. You know, it's, it's just, it, it, I don't know, sets me on fire. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time in this conversation. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. Uh, it's really an honor to, to be here speaking with you today. If you like today's show with Jonathan Escoffrey, author of the story collection, If I Survive You, check out my interview with Charles Baxter, who Jonathan mentioned was his instructor in his MFA program. There are three interviews with Baxter in the archive, two on craft, and one on his novel, The Sun Collective. You can find those interviews in the entire First Draft archive of more than 370 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Stacey Derasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.